We rejoin bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis on 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, with our very special guest, Dr. Mohammed Sahimi. He is explaining the circumstances and the international illegality of the United States withdrawal from the JCPOA unilaterally and our current diplomatic relationship with Iran. But as you mentioned, even though the United States exceeded the nuclear agreement in May of 2018, Iran took a policy of what they call a strategic patience. In other words, even though the U.S. had exceeded the agreement, Iran abided by its obligation for one more year until May 2019, hoping that cooler heads in Washington would prevail. But that didn't happen. So what happened was Iran started walking away from the nuclear agreement because the nuclear agreement itself allowed that. It said that if one of the signatories did not deliver on its promises, the other side, namely Iran, can also start distancing itself from the agreement. So as a result, Iran started distancing itself. Iran removed some of those limitations, uh, started enriching uranium again beyond the limits that the agreement had allowed started to use advanced centrifuges that allows Iran to enrich more at a shorter time, and started to put back the nuclear reactor whose core Iran had removed in 2015. Now, during his election campaign, President Biden had promised that if he's elected, he will quickly go back to the nuclear agreement. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I was skeptical and my skepticism burned out, skeptical simply because his two principal advisors, namely Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, and Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, have always been Iran hardliners. In other words, they have always had a very hard view of Iran. Blinken in particular, who was national security advisor to President Biden when he was vice president to President Obama, has always had a, a very hard, long view of Iran. So I was skeptical that Biden will quickly return to nuclear agreement. And of course, as we, we all know, not only he didn't return to the agreement, but he also continued Trump policy towards Iran. And the reason is, you mentioned it yourself, the reason is that the Iran policy is more or less independent of who the president is. The Iran policy because of the lobby by Israel and Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, and also because of the fact that the United States political, economic, security establishment looks at Iran as a threat and as a country that should be a client of the United States, always view Iran with hostility. As I said, even before the revolution, Iran was viewed as a client state rather than as an ally. The way, for example, we treat Saudi Arabia. And that's the most mystifying thing to me because compared to Iran, Saudi Arabia is a country that has no potential for anything. It just has vast oil reserves, which Iran also has. But Iran has a highly educated population of 86 million sitting on the most strategic area in the Middle East. And this population is young, 60% is below the age of 35. And they are actually pro-West as opposed to population in Saudi Arabia, which is generally anti-West because of the support that the United States gives its regime. So Dr. Yes. Sumimi, I mean, I think it's really important that 
Saudi Arabia, this kind of arch enemy of Iran, and this has been used by the West against Iran as well. I just want to remind our listeners, we are visiting with the esteemed scientist and nuclear expert, Dr. Mohammed Sahimi from the University of Southern California. I wanted to say, Dr. Sahimi, in the context of what you're currently speaking to, I wanted you to highlight in your article, if people are interested, they can access it. The one that you wrote, Want to Help Iran Reformers Revive the Nuclear Deal that you posted on Responsible Statecraft on July 21st of 2022, just two weeks ago. Your article actually reflected the same theme as the article we introduced at the beginning of the show, U.S.-Iran nuclear deal ploy coming full circle, July 23rd, 2022 article by Brian Berletic. It's almost like if Iran agrees to everything, then we must change it kind of philosophy. And it's insistence on, as you point out in your article, that first they claimed Iran was insistent on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC being removed from the list of U.S. foreign terrorist groups, but you indicated that that was negotiable. The insistence that the Biden administration not renege on its JCPOA obligations. In other words, instead, Iran understands that another president can come in after Biden and renege on the treaty just as Trump did. But all they wanted apparently, and I wanted you to explain this, was that they could get a commitment from the Biden administration, at least as long as they were in power, that they would get that economic relief from these sanctions and otherwise for returning to the JCPOA. And the concern that they had was they didn't want the Biden administration to then turn around and remove those sanctions, not for a nuclear issue, but for some type of human rights issue or something like that. In other words, anything that we wanted to make up as, as a precondition for reinstituting the sanctions. So can you explain that a little bit more? I mean, apparently, whatever agreements are made, even if they're abided by, apparently new requirements can be rolled out and claimed to be violated, which would then give the pretense for new Iran sanctions that could replicate the ones that they just got out of. Is that, is that what you're saying in your article? Exactly. You see, when the goal is not to reduce tension with Iran, but rather to undermine it one way or another, then even if Iran delivers on its obligation under the nuclear agreement, then the United States can reimpose the sanctions that it suspended under the agreement uh, under another excuse. For example, they can say, well, Iran is helping Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, and therefore we are going to impose this sanction. And this sanction that we're going to impose was part of the sanctions that they had suspended or canceled under the nuclear agreement. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is really important. You already alluded to how under international law, much of the sanctioning that we've done is illegal by any standard, that the only legal sanctioning must come from the UN body itself, right? Yes. So it's one thing to say if the UN, they can ap apply a sanction, but if we've already seen in the history of the United States diplomatic efforts that they, under any pretense they want, can make up almost excuses to sanction, then there's no safety from the sanctions. Would Iran, you think, have been much more amenable to the latter, namely that it would have to be a UN sanction type of situation? Of course, 
You see, for someone like me who is from Iran and who would like to see a democratic system of government in Iran, whereby people can choose their own president, parliament, and so on, and develop the potential of this wonderful country and ancient civilization for 7,000 years. What really pains me is that everything that the United States does is against those within Iran who are trying to develop such democratic system in Iran and is basically implicitly supports the hardliner in Iran that the United States always complain about. For example, in 2003, at the height of Khatami administration, the U.S. invaded Iran. The most important beneficiary of that invasion was Iran hardliners because they said, look, there is a threat to national security. After Iraq, they can invade us, and therefore nobody should say anything. That was another factor in the rise of Ahmadinejad, a populist, a right-wing populist in Iran, because of the threat of the United States imposed on Iran. The same thing right now. Right now in Iran, we have a civil movement because of the bad economic conditions, because of the mismanagement, because of the deep corruption in Iran. There is a civil movement that protests practically on a daily basis the hardliners' policies. But as long as the United States keeps imposing these sanctions and keep them in place, and as long as the United States, particularly to senior advisor uh, to President Biden, namely Jake Sullivan and uh, Tony Blinken, advising to follow the hardline policy of Mike Pompeo and Trump, this will go against those in Iran who want to have a more representative government, a freer society, a more democratic system of government, and open relations, friendly relations with everybody around the world, and in particular, the Middle East. So when you do this, not only you go against what you claim you want, because the United States always claim that they want to have some sort of accommodation with Iran, they want to reduce tension, and they want to be inclusive regarding Iran and the Middle East. But every action that they take goes against that. And even the promises that they make during their election campaign are not delivered. Why at the same time they blame you? I mean, I'm opposed totally to the present administration in Iran. I don't like Raisi. I don't like his administration. I think it's a it's an incompetent administration. But the same incompetent administration has tried to accommodate the United States. As you said, First, they said that Iran wants the Revolutionary Guards to be delisted from the terrorist list. And yes, the Iranians want it. And in fact, President Rouhani, who left office last year, has said many, many times that at the very beginning of Biden administration, when the two governments got in touch with each other, the U.S. has agreed to that. In other words, it had agreed to remove the Revolutionary Guards from terrorist list. But then they reneged again, once again, and what is surprise here, and they said that we are not going to do it unless you make a new concession. In other words, you have to give us something in return for that. So that was set aside. Then Iran wanted a guarantee that the next administration will not renege. And the Biden administration, and I should say correctly, pointed out that they cannot do that because the nuclear agreement hasn't been ratified by U.S. Senate, and therefore the next administration can actually renege on it, even though it is against in violation of U.N. Security Council 2231, which Trump did. 
Okay, so the Iranians gave that up. Then the next thing they wanted, the US and the SV1, is that, okay, at least guarantee that as long as you are in office until end of 2024, the sanctions that are that are lifted or will be lifted under the terms of returning to the nuclear agreement will not be imposed under another name. But apparently, even that is not acceptable to the Biden administration. So the question is, what is it that Iran will gain if there is no guarantee for it? If it is not guaranteed that the old sanctions that is removed today will be imposed six months later, because six months later they can say, well, part of the budget for Iran's revolutionary guards comes from Iran's export of oil. And therefore, what it means is that Iran's national Iranian oil company that sells Iran's oil is helping an organization that we view as terrorists, and therefore we are going to sanction them again. So if there is no guarantee, then what is it that Iran will gain? The only thing that Iran will, uh, will get is a trap, saying that you do everything we say, but we don't guarantee that we give you anything. That's what this other writer was saying too. It's just a big ploy in the sense that what you have is a continuity of policy through this Republican and Democratic administrations that we are very dishonest and not transparent in our diplomacy. I think it's really what other countries have been seeing for a long time in many different venues. Just to repeat, in other words, of what you're saying, and going back to this original article that this guy Berletic had put together, is that it's almost like the United States is a diplomatic con artist. It pretends it wants to be diplomatic, but it has this track record of backing out or then adding other conditions that ultimately sabotage the success of these diplomatic efforts. So the United States would offer Iran a deal, and then it would sabotage in some form or fashion, and then use that failure as a pretext. And this it's not a conspiracy theorist kind of thing. This document that we alluded to at the very beginning of the show by the, uh, the Brookings Institute, which path to Persia, indicated this very strategy, that you just keep moving the goalposts, you keep creating these deals until you have a real pretext in order to do something more like, I guess, with the limited time we have left, Dr. Sahimi, what really concerns me is that everywhere in this world, it seems like we promote conflict and war. I mean, whether it was in Libya, whether it is in Syria, whether it's the provocations that had substantial inputs that resulted in Russia's invasion, which Ukraine, I don't necessarily support, but can see the reasons for. But here in Iran, it's like everywhere we have our finger in the pie we are stirring up conflict. We are always, like in our examples that we've given very clearly tonight, shown that when there was a way to promote a very moderate and autonomous and a country committed to the sovereignty of Iran, that's obviously what we didn't want because we had that opportunity significantly. And you can see what we did with that. And this is really instructive to get an honest snapshot of the character of our foreign policy. We say we want to promote democracy throughout the world, but these are empty words when in fact we are promoting conflict and we encourage only nations that follow our lead, follow our dictates, mortgage their sovereignty to our policies. That's not promoting democracy, that promotes hegemony. And as we've described on other shows, when we talk about an international rules-based order, in reality, we're talking about 
we make up the rules as we go along. Just as you can remember as being a kid, when you're playing a game and all of a sudden someone makes up a rule that benefits them directly at your expense, that's not fair. That's not democracy. But that's what we've got. But in our limited time that we have left with you, I wanted to ask you, it's more of a a larger geopolitical issue, the connection between our relationship with Iran and our policy in Syria seems intimately connected. That when we think about Wesley Clark and the seven nations, he said that we were going to overthrow back in 2001. Syria was on that. Iran was on that. You know, you go right down the list with Iraq and Libya and They were all on that. And in order to get at Iran, the Syria thing was a huge and important domino. And here you have another humanitarian disaster, if you will, that's going on in Syria based on the U.S. illegal occupation of the eastern part of Syria to this day, where their breadbasket is, where their oil revenues are that would help fund the reconstruction efforts that are badly needed there. Can you link in the Syrian and the Iranian U.S. foreign policy issues in a coherent fashion in the last four or five minutes that we have with you? Well, of course, they are intimately linked because Syria is another country in the Middle East that is not satellite of the United States. And therefore, obviously, Syria is also a country in which our government has intervened and has forces there and has occupied part of Syria without authorization from the Syrian government. At the same time, the Iranian government and the Syrian government are close, are allies, and in fact, Iran helped this uh, Syrian government in its fight with foreign terrorist organization in Syria. And obviously then that adds another dimension to the conflict between Iran, Syria on one hand, and the United States on the other hand. And what you said a minute ago, uh, I had to admit it, uh, because I love the United States, I've been living this in this country for the past 44 years, uh, and this is my adopted country, and I get to see that uh, our country, my country, my adopted country does this. But what you said is completely true. Our country, our government instigate and provokes war around the world. President Jimmy Carter said a couple of years ago that Donald Trump called him and told him that he's worried about China getting ahead of the United States economically. And President Carter responded, why they are getting ahead of us? Because in our 246 years or 245 years of history, we only have had five years that was free of war. The rest of our history, you know, was 238 or seven years The United States has always been involved in one war or another, either internal war, like in terms of the civil war, or invading another country, taking coup in another country, and then live with its consequences. World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, the 20-year-old war in the Middle East, and so on. So why are we wasting our resources in, in useless wars? Trump said that we spend $7 trillion in the Middle East, and what did he get for it? Nothing, except for bloodshed, destruction, and instability. Uh, China is spending those type of resources for not only its own economic development, but also the economic development of the countries that are supposed to buy China's product. In other words, China recognizes that if it wants to export 
a large amount of things to other countries, those countries should also do well economically in order to be able to buy those things. But China helps them with their infrastructure, with the port structure, airport structure, and so on, so that they can do it. Now, what, what do we do? We just provoke wars. So Syria and Iran, and before U.S. invaded Iraq, Iraq was also another country. And before U.S. and NATO staged the so-called humanitarian intervention in Libya, Libya was also another country. These countries were all part of that seven countries that General Wesley Clark said that uh, the U.S. was going to attack. And except for Iran, we actually attacked all of them and created not only destructions and misery for people and so on, but also huge instability that continues to this day. So these are all linked together because Iran and Syria or Libya, uh, they refuse to be U.S. clients. They refuse to accept the notion that the U.S. interests in the region has higher priority than their own national interests. And the, the other side of this coin is that the hardliners in these countries, the people who don't want to get along with the United States, use this in order to justify their hardline positions and policies towards the United States. Just like the example that I gave you about Iran. In Iran, the population is mostly pro-West and pro-United States. And right now, as we speak, there is a civil movement in Iran protesting the policies of the government, whether it is political or human rights or economical. But the United States, by continuing to impose these sanctions and by depriving Iranian people of a, a reasonable economy, and in Iran, it is the middle class that always at the forefront of positive political and social movement. But because of these sanctions, the middle class in Iran is totally weak. It is thinking only of its own survival. And as long as these sanctions are there, the middle class is not going to do anything. And the best example was that we had demonstrations in 2018 and 2020, and the middle class in Iran didn't participate in those demonstrations. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the middle class recognizes that if we participate in those demonstrations, then Iran can become another Syria or Iran can become another Libya. But if these sanctions are removed and tensions are reduced, and the middle class in Iran puts its house economicals in order, then we will have a better situation for a social movement, just as we had green movement in 2009, which was basically led by Iran's middle class. At that time, Iran's economy was doing relatively well and middle class was in a good condition and therefore it led that, that movement for a better government and more representative government. Very good. Dr. Sahimi, we're just about out of time. I just wanted to remind folks that we've had the great pleasure of visiting with Dr. Mohammed Sahimi. Uh, Dr. Sahimi, if people want to access your writings, I know you're not writing as often as I would wish you would, but are they mainly on responsible statecraft now? or? Yes, I mostly write on anti-war and responsible statecraft. Yes. yes, very good. Well, listen, thank you for the, your historical and, and current analysis. It's been very helpful. We're just out of time, and we're going to need to continue this education at a later date, I hope. Thank you so much for bringing light into the witness, Dr. Simi. Thank you for having me in your program, and keep up the good work. Okay, friend. Thank you so much. See you next week. Don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access 
Lost in Paradise, coming up next on 91.7 KOOP. It's a show that evolves around laid-back grooves, both old and new, nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Check out the phone.